Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to DSC's Untamed Heritage, the unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. Delivered in an entertaining and informative fashion, as only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC's Untamed Heritage is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club. Conservation, education, protecting hunters' rights. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Texas-raised hunting products, the scent gods. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, calling his calls made. Double nickel taxidermy, where hunting memories are preserved. Now here's your host, Larry Wysoon. White till deer seasons or a special time of the year for me, and I'm sure they are for a lot of you as well, too. As a kid, I can remember not very far from where I am right at this moment, recording on my own place. Staying in a little tin shack, a little one room, one serve-all, kitchen, bedroom, living room, storytelling room, big old wood fireplace, Tin that made the most fantastic sound whenever the rain hit the sides of it or when an acorn fell on top of it when you weren't expecting it would cause you to jump several feet, almost almost levitate into the air above your bed. But those memories are as if they were yesterday and, and in many ways they were 50, 60 years ago. But with white-tailed deer, I've never lost that feeling of something very special, of hunting white-tailed deer. This year, the opening season in Texas was met with my daughter, Teresa, her husband, Lance, and I, and as it worked out, unfortunately, one of Teresa's co-workers was tested positive the day before with COVID, so unfortunately we did not get to do quite what I had planned. But as it worked out, they hunted the northern part of the property and, and I hunted the southern part of the property and 
sitting underneath an oak tree that's probably about four or five hundred years old and waiting for the sun to come up and get first light and expecting that first shot to fall and, and uh, knowing that our season in Texas opens a half hour before daylight and closes a half hour after daylight, after sunset rather, every day. Uh, we have a rather long season, thankfully, so it gives us an opportunity to spend a lot of time, even if we're busy with other things with work. But uh, sitting in that deer blind, the deer blind is made by, was made actually by my, my one of my son, my grandsons, Jake, and I, and, and we used lumber from a barn that in a, in a fence, a stock pen, if you will, a working cattle pen that my great-great-granddad had built. The tin that kind of surrounds a little bit of it is uh, from a, an old barn that my granddad built back in the early, or actually in the late 19, 1800s when you get right down to it hunting on property that's been in our families for about 150 years now. And, and uh, even though at one time it was a little bit bigger, no, it's not all that much big anymore. And I use those terms much big because kind of what the way it is. My brother and I, Glenn and I, own the property. And, and even though this is not the original homestead, this is one of those homesteads where the Wysoons as a family have stayed for now for 150 years and hopefully it'll continue long into the future. When I leave, it'll go to my granddaughters and, and grandkids and I know the same thing will happen with the property that Glenn owns. And because there is great pride in our property, I suspect it will be around a long time in the Wysoon family. And if it isn't, whoever comes along later, I'm hope will truly enjoy it like, like we have over the last many years. All those thoughts were kind of going through my mind as I was sitting there waiting for the first first light to appear. First light meaning shooting light. I got there earlier not to disturb anything or if I disturbed anything so I could really kind of let nature come back to itself by the time it was early enough or late enough, however you want to look at it, to where if a deer showed up, it was legal to take him. One of those special moments of, of sitting there and, and recalling past hunts on this property and past hunts with my daughter and my other daughter, Beth, my grandkids and my mom and my dad. And my mom hunted deer and loved hunting deer. Uh, my dad passed away about 10 years ago. Thank God my mother is alive at about 94, 95 right now. And were she a little bit more agile, she'd be out in the woods right now. Every time I go hunting, I try to give her a call and give her a report. and tell her what we saw and, and all those kind of good things. Talk about the crows calling and hawks showing up and squirrels scampering and maybe armadillo running by and coyote howling off in the distance. Tell her all those things to, I'm sure it kind of spurs her memory of the times when, when we all kind of hunted together on this property. Was licking, I was sitting there and I almost said licking out. I was licking my lips, waiting for that first deer to come by, actually, I guess is a good way to describe it. But it uh, took a little while for that first deer to appear, and when it did, it was over on our neighbor's place that I also leased for hunting. And turned out to be two does and three fawns, and they kind of meandered through our way. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. You know, sitting here and, and looking at these deer and, and knowing that probably come the Thanksgiving holiday, we can legally take a doe and we'll probably end up taking one of those does to kind of perpetuate 
ourselves as well as, as the population. We've got a great population here now and really need to start shooting some does and, and uh, that'll all be part of the Thanksgiving ritual this year. Sitting there though and watching these deer, I noticed that one of those bucks, I say one of those bucks, one of those fawns was a little buck, a little square-headed buck with little nubbins protruding off the top of his skull. and. You know, looking at him through binos and wondering what in the world he's going to experience in the next several years. And, and hopefully, two or hopefully two, he will be able to survive into that five, six, seven-year-old age class. Now, we have a few of those deer, not very many, but by the time most of our bucks get to be three and four years of age, particularly starting at three, they're, they're legal, meaning they have four points on the side and have a 13-inch inside spread. And at that point... Uh, with the neighbors that we have, even though we try to pass up some deer, some of those deer are going to get shot. So sitting there thinking about what this little deer might turn into and, and hoping and praying that he survives until that seven or eight year old and, and maybe one of my grandkids or my daughters will be able to take him at that point. So peaceful, so quiet. Crows off in the distance, you know, birds starting to come alive a little bit. And insects are making some noise, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, life truly is good. No sooner than the sun is up, I see another deer off in the distance and never got a really good look at it. It looked like a little buck, possibly, or, or a buck. Now, the reason I say that, even though I didn't get to see its head, I noticed that its tarsal glands, those glands on its hocks, its hind legs, were relatively dark. Now, generally in our part of the world, bucks do not have very dark hawks. Does very seldom at all ever have dark hawks. But most of our bucks here generally do not have dark hawks until they're three and a half or maybe four and a half years of age is because of all the rutting activity. And that includes the scraping that they're doing to where they'll stand over that scrape that they pot in the ground and, and trickle urine over their, their tarsal glands and, you know, onto the, to the ground below. And that really kind of stains them dark along with probably some secretions out of the hawks, the uh, tarsal glands themselves. But generally if you see a deer in, in the southern half of the country and he's got really dark hawks, He's probably going to be four and a half years old. Now, that same deer up north, and the, once you get up above about Oklahoma line, if you cut it straight across over to Georgia or Carolinas, if that buck has got uh, dark hawks, he's probably a four and a half year old plus, a three and a half year old plus. Our southern deer have a tendency to mature a little bit later because they have the opportunity generally to live a little bit longer. The northern deer facing all the uh, cold weather that they have a tendency to have to do. Generally, those mature at, at three and a half, the bucks do. And so, if you see those dark hawks, it's probably a good sign that there's a mature deer attached to them. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see the antlers, so I have no idea whether he was a legal buck or, or not, but uh, chances are pretty darn good it was a buck. And I was hoping that this deer, with the rate that he was going, or and also the direction that he was going through some woody areas there, that he might show up at my daughter's, to where she'd have a good chance to look at him. But unfortunately, I guess he turned back or went another direction, and uh, she did not get a chance to see him. Very quiet, and then all of a sudden it started getting loud, and it got loud and louder and louder. And the loud I'm describing is of a motor, I think they call them motocross races. Our neighbor to the south is an enthusiast of, of motorcycles and 
lo and behold, he, for opening weekend, decided to have a motocross ranch, race rather right across the fence from us with about 150 participants. Well, it, it started, as I said, just a little bit after good first light and the sun being up, and it continued throughout the day, throughout the day with loud motorcycle noises just to the point to where you couldn't hardly hear yourself think or talk to somebody that was sitting next to you. And, and when that wasn't going on to the full extent of the noise, then they were playing extremely loud music and uh, they're just the property just to the south of us. And unfortunately we had a little bit of a southerly breeze. So all the dust that they stirred up blew over to our place and covered us with dust and covered us up with, with sounds. And, and I'm sure any self-respecting white-tailed deer that we had in the country that may have been over on their property as well from time to time, probably moved over about four or five different properties. Or, uh, not that they left the county, because I got a feeling they'll eventually be back, but two, they were so greatly disturbed that it, with the first day of the, what would have been hunting season, it was hunting season, but unfortunately, it was so loud we, we did hunt, but it was both, <laughs> it was mainly just kind of going through the motions of, of sitting there and, and uh, wearing earmuffs so you didn't hear all the noise and wiping your gun down periodically to keep the dust off of it. Oh gosh, middle part of the day, came back in and, and did some bacon and eggs and had an area that I could kind of cover up a little bit so the dust wouldn't get to it. and. Uh, put on some tortillas and had a bunch of tortillas and bacon and eggs and just finished that and trying to tell a few stories with my daughter and son-in-law but again it was tough to hear each other even unless you were almost shouting and uh, just one of those things uh, looked up and saw what looked like a game warden truck hidden our way and as so he got closer, realized, yes, definitely it was. It was a local game warden, a gentleman by the name of John Coleffel. Now, I happen to also know John's dad, Jack, who was a Texas game warden, and also his father, grandfather, whose name was Leo Coleffel. So John is actually a third generation, third generation game warden. Very proud of him for being that way. Those guys do an absolutely fantastic job. He showed up in our little camp area here and, and uh, we talked a little bit about old times and and uh, he never even asked whether we had a hunting license. I guess he knew that uh, there was no chance that we were not going to have a hunting license. <laughs> and of course we didn't have anything to show except for dusty clothes and, and uh, earmuffs sitting around the campfire trying to keep the, keep the, the noise from getting to you. That afternoon hunted and uh, again, it was just really, really loud until dark. And, and then after dark, the motocross races quit, but the, uh, the loud music got even louder and there were several more places where they were playing loud music on the property. So interesting day. Got back out the next morning, the second morning of the season. Uh, Teresa and, and Lance unfortunately had other things they needed to do. They were gonna come out that afternoon, second afternoon. So. Uh, I went back out, sure enough, first light, here comes the music, here comes the loud noises, and not a thing to show up. Couldn't even hear the crows crawling, or birds chirping, or insects making any kind of noise, and continued that way all through the day. And then Teresa came in that afternoon, and she and Lance went to another part, and, and that afternoon, they uh, Teresa happened to see a little seven point, 
and a couple of does, and, and that was kind of the extent of it. I, all I saw was uh, some of my other neighbor's cows. Exciting? Well, not really in the term of most people think in terms of deer hunting, but exciting in the fact that I was still out there hunting, hoping that something would come by, knowing that we do have some legal bucks kind of in the area, uh, although where they are now after the uh, all the motocross noises and all the loud music, I'm not sure if they're around. I'm not seeing any tracks like I did before we had that. I know that those deer will eventually return, but uh, seems like for the time being, my hunts have gone to the point where it's a, it's a nature walk and a nature sitting, you know, just kind of thing. Even though the motorcycle races aren't going on today, there's not really a whole lot been moving and we've had a whole lot of beautiful, cool mornings. Not cold like you'd like it, but at least cool. One of the things that I enjoy about doing things with my place is because of the fact it's been in our family a long time. It's been overgrazed for about 150 years as well, too. And one of the things I'm trying to do little bit by little bit is, is parceling off certain areas, to putting up fences, electric fences to keep the cattle out because my brother runs cattle on the property. And, and I'm all for grazing, but there's some areas that I'm just trying to set aside a little bit for a year or two, which we can do legally and not lose our agriculture exemption. And if it looked like I was going to, I'd probably go straight to a wildlife exemption. But firm believe, firmly believe that cattle grazing is really important on properties that have grass cover. Uh, deer don't eat a whole lot of grass. Grasshoppers eat grass, cattle eat grass, jackrabbits may eat some grass, and we have a few mountain of jackrabbits as well too, but one of the things that does happen is the cattle keep the grass cover down to where there's a lot of weed or forb growth, and uh, and two, there's a fair amount of hoof action, so meaning those cows weigh, say, anywhere from 600 to maybe 800 pounds, some of them a little bit heavier, and uh, Whenever they step, they're, they're creating a, a, a disturbance in the ground. Well, that little bit of disturbance, whenever we get any kind of rainfall at all, will help that water, that rain percolate into the, into the ground. And if there's any little seeds there from the weeds that I'm hoping they're you know, in that area, they'll kind of plant those weed seeds for me as well too. So I have no problem with cattle grazing, even though I get tickled and aggravated sometimes as a wildlife biologist when somebody buys a piece of property, they go, oh my gosh, there's never gonna be another cow on this property. And to me, cattle are a very, very important part as far as wildlife is concerned to make certain that grass cover is removed and other things can grow because a straight grassland situation is not very conducive to a whole lot of good wildlife species. Now, you don't have hardly any songbirds at that point. You don't have hardly any other little ground critters because just there may be cover, but there's not enough food there for them. And certainly in where you have browsers such as uh, white-tailed deer or, or even mule deer or to point elk, they'll eat some grass, yes, but it's a very limited amount and they really depend upon that those forbs, weeds, if you want to call them that, because that's what they are in a way. And then whatever browse species, fruits and nuts that can be produced. And if you properly graze, you can actually complement the, the wildlife habitat and greatly improve it. So 
that's kind of what we're trying to do here with with my little place is that i'll set aside certain areas for a year or two give some woody species an opportunity to grow and uh, then i'll run a bunch of cows in there for a relatively short period of time and allow them to eat the grass down and and have the weeds come back and and save a little moisture if you will for some of the little oak seedlings persimmon seedlings pecans and wild plums and other things that I've, I've planted in those areas and that were there probably naturally to start with anyway. So one of the other things that I've noticed over the years too is, is particularly here on this property is that as we've improved the wildlife habitat for it through hunting that uh, and for hunting, if you will, we have greatly increased the number of songbirds. Now this country used to have a fair amount of bobwhite quail, but we lost our quail back in the oh, back in the 60s and 70s or 80s, somewhere along and through there. A lot of changes in in in, uh, uh, in the range with a lot of imported grasses, very properly taken care of for strictly for grass production. And there were very few weeds along about the same time, even though people say, some people say that fire ants don't have a, an effect on them. Well, they may not have an effect on quail normally, but when other stresses are really taking their toll on quail, then when you start having fire ants to where as soon as that egg cracks, those fire ants go in there and they'll eat up everything on the inside of that egg. So those little quail never have a chance. They're, they're eaten alive, essentially. And kind of that's what happened here in our part of the country. As a wildlife biologist, I, I, I saw it happen. And uh, I know that they were a contributing factor. Were they the primary factor? Well, habitat was so very stressed in a lot of ways. But again, when they were the habitat stressed and several other things are going on, sometimes you have to adjust a little bit more. And, and unfortunately, we just had so many fire ants, there wasn't anything we could do about it. Fire ants are still here, but we've seemed to kind of reach kind of an equilibrium. We're, we're seeing some rabbits, we're seeing some squirrels. A lot of those animals totally disappeared when the fire ants first came into this country. Uh, when they first started establishing colonies all over the place, uh, there was very little here except for fire ants and, and cattle. Uh, we lost a lot of deer as fawns. We lost a lot of calves as, as when they were small. And uh, But for whatever reason, it seemed like we kind of reached an equilibrium, as I mentioned now, with, with the fire ants. And they kind of do their thing. And so far, we've been fortunate that they really hadn't gotten to us in terms of uh, killing calves and killing uh, squirrels and our baby squirrels and baby rabbits and little songbirds. Because I've also seen them up in the trees. Uh, and where they just destroyed, they just, you know, as soon as those little birds in that nest either are starting to hatch or, or hatch, the fire ants would come in and just essentially eat them alive, as I mentioned earlier. So uh, one of the things you have to learn how to deal with, and evidently Mother Nature kind of found a way to do that for us. All those things are important when you're sitting there thinking about hunting white-tailed deer. Uh, particularly when <laughs> you've got motocross rant races going on across the fence and you're wearing a pair of earmuffs so that you can't hear the races and, and uh, just kind of looking to see what you can see. But uh, as the season's progressing, this is about the third or fourth day. Uh, as I said, nothing's really come back into our area. Hopefully they will. I've never seen deer just totally leave an area because of disturbance. So. I suspect in another week or two, there'll probably be some deer back in our area. 
In the meantime, I am headed to Missouri hunting with Darren Bradley's IMB uh, Outfitters. Or IMB Outfitters is what it is up close to Macon, Georgia. I'm sorry, Macon, Missouri. Everybody go to Macon, Georgia because Macon, Missouri, there's some really good hunting to be had up there. But uh, maybe I can send you the wrong direction. Uh, I've never really met Darren, uh, although we've talked on the phone considerable. Uh, we have a bunch of mutual friends. He, he's hunted a lot of different guys I've known over the years and who I've been good friends with. And I uh, mentioned it to uh, Alex Rutledge, who some of y'all may recall and, and know from his years with uh, uh, Hunter Specialties and, and the TV shows and videos that Alex did for a long time. And I was visiting with Alex the other afternoon. I said, hey, I said, I'm coming up to Missouri to hunt deer. And he goes, where in Missouri? And I said, well, up close to Macon. He said, Macon? He said, oh, you know, I hunted up there a bunch of years ago. And he, he said, I saw very briefly a 200-plus class deer. He said, a huge deer had about a 13-inch drop tine. He said, unbelievable deer. Set up a, uh, oh, a tree stand for it. And he said, I was archery hunting. And I said, fine. he said, finally, I ran out of time. The day that next day after I had to leave he said the, there was a guy in there with a muzzleloader muzzleloader season apparently was open and shot this deer and he, he scored like 213 as a non-typical he said just absolutely gorgeous big old basic typical with a 13 inch drop tine and I said really I said man that must have been a heck of a deer and he goes yeah he said you can see it on some of the old primetime videos if you get a chance to look at them so I'm doing my best to go dig through my collection and see what I can find, if I can find that particular one where Alex was on this deer because there are apparently some footage of that deer on that old uh, video or DVD, I guess it may be, maybe a VHS tape. We've got several of both from, from those days. Um, Anyway, he was telling me, he said, honey, with with Darren Bradley. And I said, really? I said, well, that's who, who I'm going up to hunt with. And I said, we've been talking back and forth a little bit. He's found some pretty good deer, and apparently the, the rut is, is going on strong. And I'm going to be hunting what is essentially the uh, the second weekend. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll leave tomorrow uh, for that hunt. I'm not sure exactly when this podcast will appear, probably the next week or the week, week after. And... Uh, but hopefully get it out this coming week. And maybe I can do something about the hunt while I'm up there. I certainly intend to spend some time visiting with Darren and one or two of his guides talking about deer hunting in Missouri and a little bit about how it compares and contrasts maybe in terms of how you hunt, in terms of uh, those kind of things uh, as compared to hunting elsewhere. In my instance, maybe because from Texas, maybe I'll take the Texas side and have uh, Darren and his guys tell me a little bit about how they hunt Missouri and and what works for them there. And I can kind of go back and tell you what kind of works for me down here. But we'll figure out something that we can talk about. You know, when you get in the hunting camps, there's never a lack of conversation, particularly after, after you get in in the evening and start telling stories about what you saw. And so hopefully we'll be able to do a, a fair amount of that. Now the rifle that I'm taking up with me, I've just been spending a little bit of time with it here at the, on my place this morning. It is a, uh, it's a 280 Remington, and I'm shooting 140 grain, I believe it is, ELDX Hornady Precision Hunter. Now to me that bullet is, that ELDX is the most accurate, most deadly bullet I've ever shot. 
Uh, and I've shot a lot of them over the years. And the 280, well, the 280 has kind of been a favorite of mine for a long time. And I kind of got away from shooting one and I decided, you know, maybe it, it's time again. Well, the, the, there's also a, a little more to that story and the fact that my rifle has a Trigicon scope on it, a, a 10 mile Trigicon that uh, I am really, I, I really kind of like it. I, I got such in the habit of using the, the AccuPoints that Trigicon, and to me that's probably still the finest and my all-time favorite when it comes to hunting of any kind of scope rifle because of the the little non-battery tritium point of light that's right in the that right where the uh, horizontal and vertical crosshairs cross it's there all the time and don't have to worry about battery the clarity on those scopes is unbelievable the ruggedness is fantastic. I've, I've hunted with those scopes for dangerous game situations to high mountain hunts to, you know, swampy, nasty, dirty, dusty, rocky, hilly, cloudy, <laughs> all, those kind, all those kind of hunting conditions in uh, absolutely extreme cold to well, well over a hundred if you want to get down to like a hundred and 116 or 118, whatever it was when I was in Burkina Faso and, and Benin a few years ago. But uh, those scopes are unbelievably rugged. And like I said, that, that Hornady ELDX, regardless of what caliber and round you shoot it in, is phenomenal. Uh, last year when I shot my Boone and Crockett Whitetail with, with Ron and Maria up with North River Outfitting and, and close to Athabasca, uh, Alberta, I was shooting a 300 uh, Win Mag uh, AccuPoint scope, Trigicon, of course, uh, and the 200 grain ELDX. I'd shot it a fair amount uh, earlier, and uh, I'm just absolutely and totally, totally in, in impressed with what that bullet did to that deer and how it knocked it down. And of course, I've used them in Africa as well, too. But like I said, extremely, extremely accurate in almost everything that I've put it into. And I'm talking about essentially making one large hole at 100 yards with anywhere from three to five shots. And unless I pull to the side, <laughs> don't do my part. But I've noticed that the rifles that I've shoot, the Rugers that I've been shooting for a long time and, and uh, some of my other guns that I've had for even, you know, a, a long time as well, too. I've yet to find a gun that doesn't like the uh, Hornady ELDX. Uh, they also seem to like the ones that I've been shooting here as of late, the, the GMX bullet, which is a monolithic, simply meaning it's, it, it's essentially all copper. That's been an absolutely fantastic bullet, too, in terms of, of taking animals down quickly and humanely. and, and uh, if I had a choice between the two of them and could only use one of them <laughs> and didn't have to worry about some of the states that you hunt in where you can only use all copper bullets, the ELDX would certainly be my choice no matter what. I've, I've had pass-throughs on them, uh, on fair-sized animals. I've also had where the bullet stayed inside the animal and found it very nicely, perfectly mushroomed under the other side, opposite side of the skin and, and uh, uh, just did unbelievable damage to the vital areas that it went through to get there. If you haven't already tried them, let me strongly suggest that, that you you get a box of them. If, if you've got 
several friends like I do. One, one of the things we do occasionally when there's a new ammo that Horny comes out with, rather than each of us buy the, the, a separate box, what we'll do is we'll buy maybe one or two boxes, and particularly in whatever caliber and round that each of us has, and we'll kind of get together out at the range, and okay, you get three, three to five bullets, you get three to five bullets, you get three to five bullets. We'll shoot it shoot that ELDX through a great variety of different guns, including some barrel lengths, all that kind of difference uh, that you might have in, in the guns that you and your friends use, and, and make no attempt to try to sight in with it, but simply shoot it with however it's sighted in and to shoot it for a group. And one of the things that we've noticed is that uh, it may not impact where whatever else bullet you were using prior to, but the beauty of what I've found is that those groups that you shoot, irregardless of where it is sighted in, are extremely tight. And as I said, two things are important to me when it comes to hunting bullets. One, of course, it's got to be accurate so it'll go where you want it to. and You can precisely place that bullet into a, a vital area. But what's almost as important is the fact of what that bullet does when it strikes that vital area. Does it destroy great amounts of tissue? Does it put that animal into shock very, very quickly? Does it put that animal down very quickly and humanely? And again, kind of that's the thing that, that we all look forward to. I want to talk a little bit about wound channels. And this is my opinion based upon many, many years of hunting with a variety of, of uh, variety of guns from muzzleloaders to well shotgun slugs muzzleloaders a great variety of handguns and of course lots of different rifles and including game from great big biggest areas in, in, in the world to very small game but with medium-sized game to bigger game one of the things that I'm often tickled with is is when somebody will shoot an animal and the animal will just kind of lock up and they'll put another shot almost exactly in the same spot and where that first one entered and uh, or maybe shoot it a little bit longer range and put two to three shots basically you know and, and within two or three inches of each other of where they entered now what happens when you do that is you just generally don't really create a larger wound channel one of the things that I'm real big on, if I have a second shot opportunity, and I know even with that first shot, perhaps that animal's not gonna go anywhere. I like to shoot, I like to shoot, and I shoot relatively fast. My game plan in every one of those situations when I have an opportunity in an animal is to put that bullet as perfectly as I can through the center of the vital area, meaning the heart and lung area. Uh, in most instances, that's going to be an, an area that's maybe a eight by eight, maybe eight by ten kind of area for the heart and lung area. But what I'll do is try to place that bullet as precisely as I can in that area. On the second shot, if there's an opportunity to move to where I can control exactly where that bullet will go, I may put it four to five inches forward of that first shot or two to three inches below or above that first shot or two to three inches behind that first shot. And what I'm trying to do there is to create a much larger wound channel for that animal to, to go into shock and to bleed out that much quicker. And, and uh, again, so he dies or she dies very quickly and humanely. And I think that should be the goal of everybody. On the FTW ranch, 
they, they try to teach you that it's the first shot that's the most important. You know, take that animal down with one shot. And that should be our goal regardless whenever we shoot. Don't take those shots that are peripheral. And if you're not familiar with exactly where the heart and lung lays in a, or sits within a, an animal, maybe you're hunting a different species, there's all kinds of books out there called The Perfect Shot and that uh, Boddington and uh, Dr. Uh, Robertson, uh, Kevin Robinson, Robertson did. Uh, there's all kinds of things like that out there that will show you the heart and lung and proper shot placement. Not only proper shot placement on a broad, totally broadside animal, but one that is facing you, quartering to you, quartering away. If, if you don't think you can drive that bullet into the heart and lung area, then don't take the shot. Uh, I have on, on several occasions taken an animal. Uh, years and years ago, I did a, a fair amount of this where we were trying to put an animal down and we were trying to retrieve as much blood from that animal as we could. This was years of collection, doing a lot of research. And occasionally, we I would shoot a... Uh, a deer through both uh, ball joints in their hindquarters, or I would put a bullet almost about or exactly where the tail attaches to put that animal down very quickly. And then I could run up there and essentially I needed to be able to have that heart <laughs> pump out blood uh, so that we could gather as much blood as we could. Now that may sound a little bit inhumane and you know, and it really it, it, it kind of is, but we were doing that for the for research dealing with diseases and sometimes we need to try to get as much of that blood in a pump position or a pumped manner as we could so that uh, we could take that blood and then utilize it to determine what we could do to help those animals that remain, if you will. Uh, to, uh, to maybe develop an, a vaccine or to maybe develop a uh, antibody that we could apply in water or that we could apply to feed if they were supplementally fed in some form or another, or if they were baited. Uh, there were several times in years past that we would have a disease that would come into an area and as it worked out, those areas were also baited so we could apply the, that medicine, if you will, both either vaccine or an antibiotic into whatever feed that they were gonna have. So. It, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. Hunting season, as I said, are upon us. I'm getting ready now to go to Missouri. Look forward to having a, a, a report to you later. In the meantime, start thinking seriously about going to the DSC convention February 11th through 14th, 2021 at the K. Bailey Hutchison Center there in Dallas. Everything is still sitting on go. Uh, it's going to be an absolutely fabulous show. There may be a few little requirements that are different than from what we've used in the past or had to abide by in the past, including maybe masks and a whole bunch of, of uh, <laughs> uh, sanitizer stations and, and flowing going through one way or the other. But, uh, you know, that particular convention is, is, is like a huge family reunion, as I've said so very often. And, and I really think there's nothing that compares to it. I've been to all the other shows here in North America. And to me, the other shows, they're, they're nice. They're, they're pretty nice. But when you get right down to it, there's still a contrast. They're not a, can't compare them to what DSC does and how DSC treats the attendees and the, including the, uh, uh, 
those that have booth there and all those kind of good things. There's just something I think special about having it in Dallas, Texas with with the hospitality that we have and like to uh, to present to others, if you will. So if you get a chance, start making plans to be there. And if you're not already a member of DSC, they have a, a new base camp uh, membership. And if you get in it on a, in a hurry here and between now and the, the end of the year, there's an opportunity anytime you join or somebody joins, their name will go into a hopper, if you will, for a, several very unique and interesting prizes, including a Ruger American Hunter rifle that that I donated to DSC, well, uh, that will be, the, I think, the top prize. And then there's some other great items there as well, too. But you can learn more about the, the uh, base camp membership either by calling the, the office, but the best way to do it is to go to our website. It's www.biggame.org. That's www.biggame.org. Uh, too, while you're there, kind of check out what we're doing with the uh, DSC Foundation. I'm very proudly a member of the Board of Directors, and over the last several years, we've uh, granted something, I think, over $6 million to various great wildlife causes uh, that support the DSC statement of uh, mission statement of, uh, of conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. So. Uh, we've been able to do quite a bit of work. We're trying to raise money now so that we can continue the, the work that we started in certain areas, but also to fund a bunch of new projects. But there's a whole lot of good information there. It'll tell you a little bit more about what DSC really is and what DSCF is. And, and uh, we, we need your membership, quite frankly. Uh, the, the more members we have with like-minded ideas, the better the opportunities are for us to really have a, uh, to continue with the leading edge that we have when it comes to wildlife conservation. Now, wildlife conservation can mean a lot of different things to you and to other people. To me, it means the wise use of the animals and the wise use of the habitat and to make certain that there are sustainable populations to continue in the future. Hunting plays very, very important into this because were it not for hunting, we would really not have conservation. We would not have the wise use of areas. We would not have the animals that we have, and including the white-tailed deer. So I'm telling you right now, if you're like me and you absolutely dearly love hunting white-tailed deer, whether you do it in Texas, Pennsylvania, Michigan, who cares where? If, if you love hunting white-tailed deer, you too should be a member of, of uh, DSC. And again, to do so, please go to www.biggame.org. Look forward to catching up with you all next week, and we'll hopefully have by then have a pretty good story about hopefully the big deer that I took and not the big deer that got away while I was in Missouri. Y'all have a great week. Look forward to catching up with everybody next time. DSC's Untamed Heritage is also brought to you by Texas Wildlife Association, working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Wildlife Systems, serving hunters and landowners since 1987. Kenetrek Boots, for the trail less traveled. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Pyramid Air, your one stop for everything air gun. 